Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce Mr. Frank Abagnale. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here today. This is a little different. Normally when I take the podium to speak, uh, it is always about fraud and identity theft and counterfeiting. As you know, I've had the extreme pleasure of uh, working for your bank for the last few years, putting on seminars for your corporate customers around the country, and that's mainly where I spend a great deal of my time doing. But today, I've been asked to start the program off a little bit talking about my life, in which the film, of course, Catch Me If You Can, was based. About th 40 years ago, a veteran police journalist wrote a book about my life. The journalist, of course, told the story from his point of view. 35 years later, what some consider to be the world's greatest film director, told a story about my life on film, and that was, of course, from his point of view. So I thought this afternoon I'd just tell you the story from my point of view. I was uh, raised just north of New York City in Westchester County. I was actually one of four children in the family, the so-called middle child of the four. My uh, parents educated me at the Christian Brothers of Ireland private Catholic school called Iona in New Rochelle, New York, where I went to school from kindergarten to high school. By the time I had reached the 10th grade and the age of 16, my parents, after 22 years of marriage, decided one day to get a divorce. Unlike most divorces, where the children are always the first to know, my parents were very good about keeping that a secret. I remember being in the 10th grade when the father excused me from the classroom and told the brother that he would take me up to the county seat in White Plains, New York, where I would meet my parents and they would explain what was going on. I collected my books, and the brother drove me up to White Plains and pulled up in front of a big stone building, told me to go on up the steps, and my parents would be waiting in the lobby. I remember climbing the steps. There was a sign on the building that said Family Court, but I really didn't understand what that meant. When I arrived in the lobby, my parents were not there, but I was ushered back into an immense courtroom where I noticed my parents were standing before a judge. I couldn't hear what the judge was saying, but eventually the judge saw me at the back of the room, so he motioned me to approach the bench. I walked up to stand in between my parents. I distinctly remember the judge never looked at me and never acknowledged I was standing there. He never looked up from his papers. He simply read that my parents were getting a divorce. And because I was 16 years of age, I would need to tell the court which parent I chose to live with. I started to cry, so I turned and ran out of the courtroom. The judge called for a 10-minute recess, but by the time my parents got outside, I was gone. My mother never saw me again for about seven years, till I was a young adult. My father, contrary to the movie, never saw me, nor ever spoke to me again. In the mid-1960s, running away was a very popular thing for young people. A lot of them got caught up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. Instead, I took a few belongings from my home, packed them in a bag, boarded what was then the New Haven and Hartford Railroad, and took a short train ride down to Grand Central Terminal in New York City. My father did own a stationery store, but actually in Manhattan, located on the corner of 40th and Madison, still there today. And like all of us, we had to work in that store from the time I was about 14. So I made deliveries for my dad. I knew the city very well, so I look, started looking for the same type of work. There were a lot of signs on the window, stock board, delivery boy, part-time. I'd walk in and apply. So tell me, young man, how old are you? 16. How far did you go in high school? 10th grade. I'll hire you. Went to work for a few hours a day. Soon realized I couldn't support myself on the money I was being paid for that few hours. I also realized as long as people believed I was 16 years old, they weren't going to pay me any more money. 
At 16, I was six foot tall. I've always had a little gray hair since I was about 14 or 15. My friends in school said that once a week when we wore a suit to school, I looked more like a teacher than a student. So I decided to lie about my age. In New York, we had a driver's license at 16, but back then they didn't have a photograph on it, just an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April 1948, but I dropped the four, converted it to a three, and that may be 10 years older or 26 years old. I walked around applying for the same type of work. People gave me a little more money, a few more hours, but even then it was difficult to make ends meet. One of the few things I had taken when I left home was a checkbook. My father had opened a checking account for me at a small community bank in Mount Vernon, New York. I had a little money in the account. Every so often I'd write a check to supplement my income, $10, $15, funds were there, checks were good, but it was my friends, my peers who would say to me, you know, you're the only guy I know walks into a bank in the middle of Manhattan, you have no account there, you don't know a soul. You talk to somebody behind the desk and they okay your check. Oh, well, my checks are good. If I walked in that bank, they wouldn't touch my check. You walk in, they don't bat an eye. Years later, reporters would say that that was my upbringing, mannerisms, dress, appearance, speech, whatever it was, was very easy to do. So consequently, when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. Of course, the checks started to bounce. Police were looking for me as a runaway. I thought maybe it was a good time to start thinking about leaving New York City. But I was quite apprehensive about going to Chicago, Miami, wondered if they'd cash a New York check on a New York driver's license in Miami as quickly as they did in Manhattan. I was walking up 42nd Street one afternoon about 5 o'clock in the evening, 16 years old, pondering all of these things when I started to approach the front door of an old hotel that used to be there called the Commodore Hotel, now the Grand Hyatt. Just as I was about to get to the front door of the hotel, out stepped an Eastern Airline flight crew onto the sidewalk. Couldn't help but notice the captain, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, about three or four flight attendants dragging their bags to the curb to load them in the van to take them to the airport. As they loaded the van, I thought to myself, that's it. I could pose as a pilot. I could travel all over the world for free. I probably could get just about anybody, anywhere, to cash a check for me. So I walked up the street a little further to 42nd and Park. I went to cross over, but I heard a huge helicopter looked up and there was New York Airways landing on the roof of the Pan Am building. Pan Am, the nation's flag carrier, the airline that flew around the world, I thought what a perfect airline to use. So the next day I placed a phone call to the executive corporate offices of Pan Am. When the switchboard was ringing, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to say. When they answered, Pan American Airlines, good morning, can I help you? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'd like to speak to somebody in the... Um, somebody in the purchasing department. Purchasing, one moment. The clerk came on and said, yes sir, maybe can help me. My name is um, John Black. I'm a co-pilot with the company based out of San Francisco. Been with the company about seven years. Never had anything like this come up before. What's the problem? Well, we flew a trip in here yesterday. We're going out today. Yesterday I sent my uniform out through the hotel to have it dry clean. Now the hotel and their cleaner say they can't find it. Here I am with a flight in about four hours. No uniform. Don't you have a spare uniform? Certainly, back home in San Francisco, but I'd never get it here in time for my flight. Do you understand that this would cost you the price of a new uniform, not the company? I understand. Hold on, I'll be right back. He came back and said, my supervisor says you want to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They're our supplier. I'll call them and let them know you're on the way. They'll take care of you. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know, so I went down to the well-built uniform company 
Little fellow, Mr. Rosen, fitted me out in the uniform. Back then they were black Aberdeen, the three gold stripes on the arm, the gray hair. I certainly looked old enough to be the pilot. When he was all done, I said, how much do I owe you? Well, the uniform's $286. said, no problem, I'll write you a check. I said, no, um, we can't take any checks. Oh, well then, um, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. Then in these boxes, you put your employee number. And we bill this back under uniform allowance. Comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. Well, that's even better. New York had two airports, LaGuardia and Kennedy. LaGuardia was about 20 minutes from Manhattan. Kennedy was about 50. So naturally, LaGuardia being the closer of the two, that's where I went. Spent most of the morning walking around LaGuardia, 16 years old, trying to figure out now that I had this uniform, how the hell do you get on these planes? Well, I got a little hungry about lunchtime. I walked in the luncheonette, sat down at the counter on the stool, ordered a sandwich. Moments later, a TWA crew walked in. Flight attendant sat in the booth, pilots sat up the counter on either side of me, captain right next to me. Back before deregulation of the airlines, airline people thought of themselves as just one big family. They didn't hesitate a moment to talk to each other, and the captain kind of leaned over. Hey, young man, how's Pan Am doing? Doing just fine, Captain. I mean, what's Pan Am doing out here at LaGuardia? Pan Am doesn't fly into LaGuardia. They only go into Kennedy. Well, I picked up on that right away. Yes, uh, <laughs> we came into Kennedy, had a short layover, came over to visit some friends of mine. Matter of fact, I'm on my way back to Kennedy now. So tell me, young man, uh, what type of equipment are you on? Now, airline people have a lot of jargon for things, and one of them is they never call a plane a plane or an aircraft. They call it equipment, and what type of equipment you're on means what type of plane do you fly? Back then, the DCA, the 707. Of course, I didn't know that, and I thought, what type of equipment am I on? Only equipment I'm on is this stool. They must mean what type of equipment is on the planes I fly. So I thought, well, they've got the wings, they've got the engine. <laughs> they always had a sticker on the engine, who manufactured the engine, so I said, yes, General Electric. All three pilots kind of just stopped eating and leaned over. Captain said, oh, really? What do you fly, washing machines? So I knew I said the wrong thing, out the door I went. Everybody had an airline ID card, plastic, laminated card, much like an Ohio driver's license today, yet without the ID card, the uniform was worthless. I went back to Manhattan pretty discouraged, thinking, where would I come up with a Pan American Airline corporate ID? I was sitting in the hotel room, I noticed a big, thick Manhattan yellow pages, so I flipped them open and looked under the word identification. There were three or four pages of companies who made convention badges, metal badges, plastic badges, police badges, fire badges, started to call around, and finally one company said, listen, most of those airline IDs manufactured by Polaroid, 3M company, need to call one of them. Finally got the 3M company on the phone in Manhattan. Yeah, we manufacture Pan Am's identification system, along with a number of other carriers. How come? So I tell you, I'm a purchasing officer for a major U.S. carrier. I'm in New York just for the day, getting ready to expand our routes, hire a lot of new employees, go to a formal ID. We're very impressed with this Pan Am format. Wondered if I came by your office this afternoon briefly, we could discuss quantity and price. By all means, come on by. So I went by just in the suit, and the sales rep opened the book. Yeah, we do United, Delta, Eastern, Pan Am right here. And we like this Pan Am format. Wonder if you might have a sample I could bring back. Sure, I'll be right back. And he brought me back a 5 by 7 glossy piece of paper with a picture of an ID card printed in the middle of it, blown up. Someone else's picture in the picture. John Doe for a name. And in bold red ink across the front, this is a sample only. I said, no, I'm afraid this one too. You know, I need to bring back the actual physical card. By the way, 
what is all this equipment on the floor? Oh, no, we don't just sell these cards. We sell the system, camera, laminator. I see. We'd have to buy all this? Absolutely. But they what, since we have to buy it all, why don't you just demonstrate how it works and use me? Fine. Never see right here. Took my picture and made up the card. I was going down the elevator studying the card, had a blue border across the top, about a quarter of an inch in Pan Am's color blue, but not a single thing on the card said Pan Am. No logo, no insignia, no name. This was a plastic card like a credit card. You couldn't type on it. You couldn't write on it. You couldn't print on it. Discouraged, I put it in my pocket, headed back to the hotel. As I was walking back, I noticed I had passed a hobby shop, so I turned around and walked back. Excuse me, sir, I see you sell a lot of models here. Uh-huh. You sell models of commercial jetliners? Sure, over there. And I bought a model of a Pan Am 707 cargo jet for about $2.40. Took it back to my room, opened the box, threw all the parts out, but there at the bottom of the box was a sheet of decals that went on the model. And when you soaked them in a glass of water, the little Pan Am globe that would have went on the tail of the plastic plane went perfect up at the top of the plastic card. And the word Pan Am and the special styling of graphics that would have went on the fuselage went perfect across the top of the card. A clear decal on the laminated plastic made a beautiful identification card. Pan Am says they estimate that between the ages of 16 and 18, I flew well over a million miles for free, boarded more than 250 commercial aircraft, visited more than 26 countries. Pan Am says keep in mind that though Frank Abagnale did in fact pose as one of our pilots, he never once stepped on board one of our aircraft. That's true. I never flew on Pan Am because I was afraid someone might say to me, you know, I'm based in San Francisco, been there 23 years. I don't recall ever meeting you before. You must know so-and-so or so-and-so. Or someone might have said, you know, your ID card is not exactly like my ID card. So instead, I flew on everyone else. If I wanted to go somewhere, I literally just walked out to the airport and looked on the board. United Flight 800 to Chicago. Then I went downstairs to the door marked United Operations and walked in. Operations clerk, A. Pan Am. We do for you. I was wondering if the jump seat's open on 800. I need to deadhead to Chicago. Jump seat. It's open this evening. I'd like to get a pink slip pass. And I'd give my ID, write me out a pass. I'd walk out, hand it to the flight attendant. She'd open the door of the cockpit, and I'd step in. They had a captain, a co-pilot, a flight engineer, and a seat behind the captain called the jump seat, where pilots did hit on company time. Now, because pilots love to talk shop, once you picked up that jargon, it was the same conversation over and over and over. <laughs> I'd just step on board. Even Jen and Bob Davis be riding in Chicago. On the taxi out, always the same question. So, Bob, how long have you been with Pan Am? Been flying about seven years. What position you fly? A right seat, which was airline terminology for a co-pilot. What type of equipment are you on? Had that one down. Perfect. <laughs> Matter of fact, whatever they flew, I didn't fly, so I had no problems with that. <laughs> then we'd arrive in Chicago, I'd go by the Pan Am ticket counter, but just enough to get the attention of the passenger service rep. So could I help you? Excuse me, where do we live? We had the dead at a trip where somebody got ill, never laid over in Chicago. So we was at Parma House Hilton downtown. Catch your crew bus lower level, door three up. I'd go down the Parma House Hilton and walk in, and on the corner of the registration desk was a little sign that said airline cruise. That was a three-ring binder. You signed in, referenced your flight number, showed your ID card, they gave you a key. I'd stay two or three days, and Pan Am would be direct billed for my room and my meals. I also could cash a personal check at the front desk of the hotel because the airline had a contract with the hotel, and they'd cash the employee's personal check up to $100. But then I found out that every airline honors every other airline employee's personal check, a reciprocal agreement still practiced today in 2006. So at the Cincinnati International Airport, a Delta flight attendant can walk over to an American ticket counter, show her Delta ID, and cash a personal check 
up to $100 and vice versa. Of course, when I found that out, I'd go out to JFK or LAX, only I'd go to everybody, Northeast, National, KLM, Air France. Take me a good eight hours stopping at every counter and every building. By the time I got all the way around the other end of the airport, at least eight hours had gone by. And what do you have in eight hours? Shift change, new people. So I go all the way back around the other way again. The only reason I quit at 18 is the FBI issued a John Doe warrant for interstate transportation of fraudulent checks. A John Doe warrant meant the FBI didn't know my identity. In the warrant, the FBI said, based on interviews with people I had contact with, I was approximately 30 years old. I was 18. Had a great deal of money, so I hung the uniform up and moved to Atlanta, Georgia. In Atlanta, I moved into a very swank singles complex that had just been built called the Riverbend Apartments. On the application for the lease, there were many questions for a teenage boy. One of them was occupation. I began to write down airline pilot, but the next question said employed by, supervisor's name, telephone contact. I thought to myself, I'll need to come up with something that would be impossible to check out. Yet something that would justify why I drive an expensive car, wear expensive clothes, and don't work much. So I wrote down the word doctor. First thing came to my mind, nothing else. <laughs> but I had a very inquisitive apartment manager. Oh, I see here you're a doctor. Uh, yes, ma'am. What type of doctor are you? Well, I'm a, um, I'm a medical doctor. <laughs> However, I'm not practicing medicine right now. I left my practice out in Los Angeles to come to Atlanta to invest in some real estate I have. I won't be practicing for a while. How interesting. Well, tell me. What type of medical doctor are you? And I figured, being a singles complex, pediatrician would be pretty safe. So I moved in, Dr. Frank Williams, pediatrician. Everybody called me doc, always a typical question. So doc, where'd you go to medical school? Uh, Columbia University in New York. Where'd you serve your internship? The Harvard Children's Hospital, out in LA. Once in a while, when the guys would come by, hey Paul, hey doc, look at my leg. I don't know what I did to it, look. Uh, Paul, I can't examine your leg. You need to go to your own doctor, let him look at that. When the girls came by, I always gave them a thorough examination, sent them on the way. I was young, but not stupid. I was living there for about two or three months. Everything was going great. One afternoon, there was a knock on the door. A very distinguished gentleman, mid-fifties, standing there. Yes, I could help you. Yes, you are Dr. Williams? Yes. My name's Gordon. Just moved in the apartment down below. Wanted to come up and introduce myself. Ah, new neighbor. Come on in. I'm not only a new neighbor, I understand you're a pediatrician. Yes, I'm the chief resident pediatrician of the county hospital up the street. Dr. Gordon was going through a divorce, just separated from his wife. He was very upset, very lonely. Every day on the way to the car, out to the pool, he'd stop you. After a minute or two about the weather, he'd start speaking medical terminology. Not being able to converse with him, I in turn would cut him short. But I knew eventually he'd get suspicious. Determined not to move. Every day I went to Emory University's medical library. Every day I read the daily journals from Johns Hopkins, from the Mayo Clinic. Every day I took a certain part of the journal, memorized it. And every night when Dr. Gordon pulled in his parking slot, literally every night, I was on the doorstep of his apartment. Hey, Doc, hear about this new theory they're using up at Mayo? Uh, what is it tonight? And I'd follow him into his apartment. He'd go in his bedroom to get undressed. I'd go in his bedroom, sit on the edge of the bed. Be in the kitchen, I'd follow him back and forth. Go to the bathroom, I'd talk through the door. Pretty soon he'd come home, hey doc, I don't have time to talk to you right now, i got to go. Guy started to avoid me, which is exactly what I wanted. One afternoon I received a phone call from the hospital administrator of the county hospital, who is not a physician, but the administrator of the hospital. Dr. Gordon suggested I give you a call, said you'd be more than happy to help us out. Now what's the problem? On the midnight to shift I have a house doctor who supervises a number of interns and nurses on his shift, just been notified of a death in his family. Returning to the West Coast tomorrow for about two weeks. 
Georgia law requires a house doctor on duty be a full practitioner or a specialist. Dr. Gordon suggested that you had a great deal of free time. You'd be more than happy to cover the ship in an administrative capacity. Uh, there's no way I could do that. Why not? Well, you see, I'm not licensed to practice medicine in the state of Georgia, just the state of California where I hold my residency. All the red tape for 10 days, no red tape. We'll bring it before the Medical Review Board tomorrow morning, and they will issue a temporary certificate. Now, being one who hates to pass up a challenge, I couldn't help but give it a shot, so I went up to the hospital. During my entire stay there, no one ever doubted for a second I was not a doctor. When the doctor returned, I laughed. I did pass the bar in the state of Louisiana, not in two weeks as the movie implied, but over a period of eight weeks during a prep course. Louisiana at the time did not require a law degree to take the bar. Louisiana, of course, practices their law under the French Napoleonic Criminal Code of Procedure, as they did then and do today. I took the bar, passed the bar. I went to work for then Attorney General P.F. Grimion in the Civil Division of the State Court, where I worked in the Attorney General's office there for a year before on my own, I resigned and left. A lot of people say, you know, it is not so much the people you impersonated as a teenage boy as it is the crimes you perpetrated as a teenage boy. Well, I did a lot of things that had just never been done before, so consequently, they got a lot of attention. I was walking down a Chicago street one day counting five $20 bills I had in my pocket. As I was counting them, I noticed I had passed the front door of a bank. There was a sign in the window said, open a checking account. So I thought to myself, I'll go in this bank and open a checking account with this hundred dollars. I'll give them this phony Pan Am ID for identification. In two weeks, they'll mail me 200 printed checks in a box with this name and with this ID. I'll cash those checks anywhere. So I walked in and opened the account. New accounts person came back. Sir, here's a receipt for your deposit. These are some temporary checks. I will be mailing you your printed checks in about 10 days. Now, being young, I was always inquisitive, so I noticed that you didn't give me any deposit slips. No, sir, they come from the check printer. Be in the back of your checkbook, print your name, your address, your account number, get them in about 10 days. Ah, I see. I was just curious, you know, if I want to make a deposit tomorrow, uh, next week, not a problem. You see the table in the lobby? Has all the forms on it? Just go over there and help yourself to a blank deposit slip. Then in this box, just write in the account number I just gave you. Use those to get your printed ones. So I walked over and took a big stack of them off the shelf. Nobody cared. Went back to my hotel. Couldn't sleep. Kept staring at them on the dresser. When the morning came, I went out and bought what was called a Burroughs 1000 magnetic encoder. Looked like a big green calculating machine. And I magnetically encoded my account number the bank had assigned to me the day before on the bottom of every one of these blanks. I then went back to the bank, put them on the shelf in the lobby, and everyone who came in put their check in my account. I was, I was at the Logan Airport in Boston. I was trying to catch a flight. It was a quarter to 12 at night. I ran out to the airport. The whole airport was closing down. Rented cars, gift shops, ticket counters. Walked up to the ticket counter. Uh, excuse me, you're closing the airport? Uh, actually, the airport lies in the heart of the city. It comes under the government's noise abatement control program. We have no jet operations after midnight. Next flight out is at 6.30 in the morning. I sat down wondering what to do. I noticed they were sticking all their cash and receipts in these big bank bags. Then they'd zip them closed, lock them, put them under their arm, walk around the counter and down the hall to the bank that was in the terminal. They'd stick their key in the night box, drop the bag down, make sure they got a green light, closed it, locked it, one right after the other, Hertz, Avis, Delta, Eastern, Dobbs House, dropping the bag. I didn't give this a lot of thought, but I came back to the airport the next night about a quarter to 12. 
I rented a bank guard uniform from a costume store in Boston. I hung a beautiful sign over the night box, said, Night box out of order. Please leave all deposits with guard on duty. Everyone did. I was a nervous one sitting there going, How the hell can the box be out of order? I mean, that's like a mailbox without an order. <laughs> of course, uh, like any criminal, sooner or later you get caught, and I was no exception to that rule. I was arrested just once in my life when I was about to turn 21 by the French police in a small town in southern France called Montpellier. French police actually arresting me on an Interpol warrant issued by the Swedish police who were looking for me for check forgery. The French authorities took me into custody, but then soon realized that I had forged checks all over France and refused to honor the extradition request and the warrant. They later convicted me of forgery and sent me to French prison. I served my time in a place called de Maison d'Array, the house of arrest in a small town in southern France called Pepignan. Steven Spielberg would later say it was extremely important for me to go back to that prison, to that exact cell, and to reconstruct it according to the logbooks during Frank's stay there. That was a blanket on the floor, no mattress, a hole to go to the bathroom in, no electricity, no plumbing. Steven Spielberg said the logbook showed I entered the prison at 21 at 198 pounds, left the prison at 109 pounds. When my sentence was over, I was extradited to Sweden, where I was later convicted of forgery in a Swedish court of law and sent to a Swedish penitentiary in Malmö, Sweden. When my prison term was up in Sweden, U.S. federal authorities returned me to the United States, arraigned me in U.S. federal court, charged with interstate transportation of fraudulent checks and flight to avoid prosecution. Eventually, a United States federal judge would sentence me to 12 years in prison. I served four of the 12 years in a federal prison in Virginia. When I was 26 years old, the government offered to take me out of prison on the condition I go to work for an agency of the federal government for the remainder of my sentence until my parole had been satisfactorily completed. I agreed and was released. This year I am celebrating 31 years with the FBI. I have worked at the Bureau now for more than 31 years. I teach at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia full-time and spend most of the rest of my time out in our field offices throughout the United States. Yesterday I was up in the Columbus, Ohio field office came down to the meeting here today. I travel about four days a week. On my days off, I usually put on programs for banks who sponsor seminars and educational programs for their corporate customers. Many banks take me on tours around the country. Over the years of my 30-year career with the government, I, of course, worked with companies like Unisys and Novell to develop technology we use in our government to protect our government. Today, those same technologies are found in the banking industry and found and used around the world by not only American banks, but banks in 42 countries around the world who use those programs I helped develop over the last 30 years, working with companies like Standard Register here in Ohio and other companies throughout the uh, world today. I uh, make my home actually in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I lived there with my wife of 30 years and my three sons. My youngest boy is 22. He's in a master's program through Harvard at the University of Beijing in China. He reads and speaks Chinese fluently and is where he goes to school. My middle son, who's 25, is in a master's program at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And my oldest boy graduated from the University of Kansas and went on to uh, Loyola School of Law in Chicago, got his law degree, and went on to live his life stream and make his dad extremely, extremely proud. He is uh, 27 and an FBI agent in our Baltimore field office. 
As many of you know, I had uh, absolutely nothing to do with the movie. It is based on a book written about me, so I received no money from the film, nor did I participate in the making of the film. I saw it in a movie theater, like everyone else. Actually, my family and I went through a great deal of apprehension, wondering if the film was a positive film, a negative film. We had no idea. They would not allow me to see a script, so I had no idea whatsoever what the film was actually about. One month prior to the release of the film, Steven Spielberg was interviewed by Barbara Walters, and I heard his comment, which was very simple, and I quote, I did not immortalize Frank Abagnale on film because of what he did 40 years ago as a teenager. I immortalized him on film because of what he's done for his country these past 30 years. In the end, my family and I were very pleased. We felt that Steven Spielberg went out of his way not to glorify the things I did, but to simply tell a story. Today, I, of course, get a lot of emails back in Washington every single day from people seeing the film for the first time, renting it for the first time. People as young as eight write me to people as old as 80 write me. Many people are not looking for a response. They just have a comment to make. Some people write and say, you were brilliant. You were a genius. I was not. I was 16 years old, a child in most people's eyes. Had I been brilliant, had I been a genius, I don't know that I would have found it necessary to break the law in order to just simply survive. I know that people are fascinated by what I did. That's why I really don't talk about it or give interviews about it. But I know people have a fascination of what I did 40 years ago. But to me, it was always immoral, illegal, unethical, and something I've never been proud of. There are many people who write and say, well, you know, you were gifted, and that I was. I was one of those few children that get to grow up in the world with a daddy. There are very few men in this world that can be called daddy. The world is full of fathers, but I had a daddy who loved his children more than he loved life itself. He was a man that told you every day of your life he loved you, not only by the spoken word, but by sheer physical affection. Steven Spielberg would later write, the more I researched Frank's youth, the more I couldn't help but put his father in the film through the likes of Christopher Walken. My father was a man who every single night at bedtime was in your room, three boys and a girl. He was 6'3", he'd drop down on one knee to you, kiss you on the cheek, pull the cover up, and he put his lips upon your earlobe and whispered deep into your, I love you, I love you very much. He never missed a night. As I grew older, sometimes I fell asleep before he came home, but I always woke up the next morning, knew he had been by my bed the night before. Years later, my older brother moved into my room. He was 6'4 in the Marines. He played semi-pro for Buffalo, but when he came home on leave, my father would walk around to his bed, hug him, kiss him, whisper in his ear, he loved him. When I was 16 years old, I was just a child. All 16-year-olds are just children. As much as you'd like them to be adults, they're just children. And like all children, I needed my mother and I needed my father. All children need their mother and their father. All children are entitled to their mother and their father. 
And though it is not popular to say so, divorce is a very devastating thing for a child to deal with and then have to deal with the rest of their natural life. For me, a complete stranger said I had to choose one parent over the other. There was no choice, so I ran. How could I tell you my life was glamorous? I cried myself to sleep till I was 19 years old. I spent every birthday, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas in a hotel room somewhere in the world where people didn't speak my language and everyone I associated with on a daily basis believed me to be their peer, 15 years older than I was. I never got to go to a senior prom, high school football game, or even share a relationship with someone my own age. I always knew I'd get caught. Only a fool would believe that you can continually break the law and not get caught. The law sometimes sleeps, but the law never dies. It was just a matter of time. I was caught. I went to some very bad places. My boys have grown up asking their mother, why is it that dad wakes up in the middle of the night and goes down the TV room because he doesn't turn the TV on, he just sits there all night because there are things you can't forget, things you're not meant to forget. While I was sitting in that French cell, my father, 57, an extremely physical, athletic man, just happened to trip on a subway stair in New York, reached his arm out to break his fall, but he slipped again, hit his head on a rail, landed at the bottom of the step. He was dead. I didn't know he was dead, so the agent, bringing me back, told me. But I was in that cell thinking about him, how much I loved him, how much I missed him, how much I couldn't wait to see him, hold him, hug him, kiss him, tell him how sorry I was, but I never got the opportunity to do that. I was very fortunate because I was brought up in a great country where everyone gets a second chance. I owe my country 800 times more than I could ever repay it for the opportunities it's given me these past 30 years. That is why I'm at the FBI 26 years beyond my legal obligation to do so. I have turned down three pardons from three presidents, including the present one, because I will never believe that a piece of paper will excuse my actions. I only believe that in the end, my actions will excuse my actions. I was very fortunate that 31 years ago on an undercover assignment in Houston, Texas, I met my wife. Unlike many assignments I was on, in this particular one, I broke protocol to tell her who I was. Didn't have a dime to my name. I eventually asked her to marry me against the wishes of her parents. She did. Now I could stand here and tell you that I was a born-again Christian. I could tell you that prison rehabilitated me. Or I could simply say that I was a young kid and made some mistakes and grew up. But the truth is, God gave me a wife. She gave me three beautiful children. She gave me a family. And she changed my life. She and she alone. Everything I have, everything I've achieved, who I am today is because of the love of a woman and the respect three boys have for their father, something I would never, ever jeopardize. There comes a time in all of our lifetimes we grow older and we have children. And as every parent in this room knows, whether your child is three months 
or 60 years old, when you lay your head on a pillow at night and you are just about to close your eyes, they're the last thing you think about, the last thing you worry about, and you will till you take your last breath. So if you still have your mother, you still have your father, you give him a hug, you give him a kiss, you tell him you love them. And remember that no matter what type of relationship you've had with your parents, you will miss them when they're gone. And to those men in the audience, both young and old, I would remind you what it truly is to be a man. I wouldn't wait till I was 50 to learn this wisdom, because then you'll live with a lot of regrets. Learn it as young as you can. Being a man has nothing to do with money, achievements, skills, accomplishments, professions, positions. A real man loves his wife. A real man is faithful to his wife. And a real man, next to God and his country, put his wife and his children as the most important thing in his life. Steven Spielberg made a wonderful film, but I've done nothing greater, nothing more rewarding, nothing more worthwhile, nothing that's brought me more peace, more joy, more happiness, more content in my life than simply being a good husband, a good father, and what I strive to be every day in my life, a great daddy. I'll see you in just a little bit. God bless you, and thanks for coming.